Mark chapter 5 verses 21 to 43 Mark chapter 5 verses 21 to 43 When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there seeing Jesus he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her, so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you? His disciples answered. And yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house, the home of synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, it's good to be back in the book of Mark this Morning, it's good to be preaching again uh, to you. Uh, it was an encouragement for me, and I trust for you too, two weeks ago to hear from Pastor John Fulmer, uh, and then last week to hear from Pastor Thabiti Anyabwile. Uh, I left last week extremely challenged. Uh, I left challenged to examine my life, to see if there was any bitterness stored in my heart. Was there anyone that I had been holding back forgiveness from? Or perhaps was there anyone I needed to confess to? I was encouraged again, as, as you were, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, 
that Christ has indeed forgiven me and now that has freed me up to forgive all those in my life. That forgiving flows from forgiveness. That it's a natural outworking of the gospel in our lives. It was a sweet reminder uh, for me last week. And I would encourage uh, each of us, uh, after a sermon, after we hear the word of God preached, that we would consider applying that to our lives. That as we leave here on Fridays, it wouldn't be merely fact or new ideas that we have learned, but that there would be life change. That we would ask ourselves, what is God teaching us in this passage? Are there things that we need to change in our lives? Are there areas that we need to repent of? Uh, I'd encourage you to consider that each and every week, that we would be applying the Word of God uh, to ourselves here uh, at Redeemer. Well, since we have taken a couple-week break from the book of Mark, let me just unpack what's been happening so far uh, in this book. We've seen that the point of the book, right, is that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. That's the, the point of the book. We see that in every chapter, is that Jesus is the Son of God. And He's been showing us this, through a succession of superhero-like days, hasn't he? We see in chapter 1, Jesus arrives. He's the king that they've been waiting for. And as soon as he jumps on the scene, he's busy healing paralytics and cleansing lepers. He's casting out demons and preaching in parables. He's even forgiving sins. And we find out in Mark chapter 4, that he even got exhausted. He needed a break, and so he falls asleep on a boat that's taking him across the Sea of Galilee, and a big storm comes, right? You remember the big storm, the disciples are freaking out, they're doing whatever they can to get the water out of the boat, and they're freaking out. Nothing can stop the storm, nothing can save them, so they go down to the bottom of the boat, and they wake up Jesus, and Jesus gets up, he walks out, and he talks to the waves, he talks to the wind, Remember that, and everything just stops. Peaceful. Jesus has command over nature, and then as soon as he gets off the boat, he casts out a number of demons from a man. Then he gets back on the boat, crosses the lake, and we pick up here in Mark 5. Jesus is now getting off a boat, and he's meeting a new group of people, a new crowd. And this morning, as we look at this beautiful story, we'll see several things about Jesus and what our response should be to him. But before we unpack those things, let's just go through uh, this story bit by bit. It'll be of encouragement uh, to us. Well, we'll start at verse 21. We see that the large crowd is gathered around him. The men have docked the boat, and Jesus' welcoming committee is ready for him. You know, everybody's taken a day off work. Uh, schools have let out. They're all just waiting there at the shore. And Jesus gets there. He steps down, and we have two amazing stories that are put together. We see the story of a woman. We see it sandwiched between the story of Jairus' daughter. Now, we asked the question straight up, why would Mark do that? Why would he interlink these two amazing stories together? And we'll see the answer to that question as we uh, dive into the text. So first, we see Jesus with Jairus. Verse 22, he's one of the synagogue rulers. Okay, this meant he wasn't just an ordinary man. He was well-known. He was well-respected. He was a spiritual leader. Not a priest, but he managed the synagogue. He planned the worship services. He kept oversight on the teaching and on the logistics to run a synagogue. But we find this synagogue ruler, he finds Jesus... And he falls to the feet of Jesus. 
Now, grown men tend not to do this sort of thing. You don't just throw yourself at the feet of another man, especially if you're a synagogue ruler, you were in charge. Much less you wouldn't fall at the feet of a carpenter. But he begs Jesus. He begs Jesus to stop his ministry in the crowd, to stop what he's doing, and to come to his house. Now, why would he do this? Well, it's because his daughter was dying, as we read, and he loves his daughter. Now, those of you fathers out there who have daughters can certainly relate to this. It's a special love between a father and a daughter. You know, I thought of my two little princesses this week as I studied this passage. They're so precious to me. I love Eliza and Nora. I love cuddling with them. I love reading books with them. I love playing tea party and basketball with them, though I'd much rather play basketball with them. But I do it all because I love my girls. You know, I look forward to our pizza picnic Sundays where we get a movie and we set up a picnic upstairs. I love hearing them pray. I love singing to my girls. Now, when Eliza was really young, it was my job on our long road trips to, to sing. Uh, and I'm virtually tone deaf, so my songs were quite the catastrophe in the car. But every time I sang a song, Eliza would quiet down. She would stop almost instantly. And I'm not sure if she liked the songs or if she just quieted down so I'd stop singing. <laughs> but whatever it was, it worked. And Gloria kept telling me to sing and sing and sing. And so I sang. And I loved those times of being with my daughter and singing with her. I love watching my girls grow up. I, I love watching them embrace the good news of Jesus. I love watching them pray. And as each week goes by, they come to know more and more about the Savior who has come. I love reading the Bible with them. I love being with them because they're precious, precious to me. See, this man in, in our story, he loves his daughter and he's desperate. He's desperate because his daughter is dying. And literally, the text says, she is at death's doorstep. It's not just that she might die. It's that she's about to die unless something miraculous happens. And so Jairus leaves his daughter on her deathbed. He may never talk to her again, but he hears that Jesus has come, that he is ashore, he's in town. So he runs to him. He pleads with Jesus at his feet. Well, fathers, think about this. Your daughter is dying. Everything is in jeopardy. All your dreams for her are crashing down. And so Jesus comes to him. Jairus comes to him. Jesus, I know you're busy. I know you're ministering to this crowd. I know you have a busy day ahead of you, but please stop what you're doing. Come to my house. My daughter is sick. So Jesus drops everything. Verse 24, he drops, he stops what he's doing. He interrupts his ministry and he follows Jairus to his house. But Jesus gets a bit distracted, doesn't he? He gets a bit of a case of ADD. He's distracted. He's on his way to Jairus' house, but something distracts him and changes his way. He takes a bit of a detour. Right? We meet the story of the woman here. A woman is pressing on towards him. A woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And this woman had gone through extensive suffering for 12 desperate years, she had struggled against her own body. She tried everything, but she couldn't stop the bleeding. It was no doubt uncomfortable, but worse than that, it made her a societal outcast. She was unclean. If she was a married woman, she would have been unable to have intimate relations with her husband. If she had children, she couldn't hug them. She couldn't pick them up. 
When her family went to the temple to worship with the people of God, like we're doing today, she had to remain alone, isolated from them, unable to go. Now in those days, a woman who a woman would have to live in isolation for a few days after giving birth to a child. This was normal. Her loving family would await her coming back to the fold. They would eagerly await the day when the priest would come and declare her clean, and they would celebrate. The family would be, would be reunited. They'd be able to celebrate together the birth of this child. But this wasn't just for a week or two for this woman. She had no hope. The bleeding had never stopped. It had been going on for 12 years consecutively. 12 years without access to worship. 12 years of gossip behind her back. 12 years without a caress, a touch, an inviting smile. 12 years of desperate exclusion, loneliness, and shame. 12 years. It's a long time, and this woman is desperate She's lonely. And she says in verse 26 that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. Imagine for a minute if you had terrible, terrible headaches. These headaches just wouldn't go away. They were debilitating. They were discouraging. They hindered your joy and your ability to function. And so you went to a doctor and They gave you all kinds of medicine, but nothing worked. So you went to another doctor. They gave you some experimental medicine. That doesn't help. Gave you you all kinds of nasty side effects, nausea, and other things. So you go to another doctor, and they do some invasive tests. And another doctor, and they do surgery after surgery, but nothing helps. And you do this year in and year out, and all you've done has actually made the condition worse. And you, in the process, have spent all your money. Maybe some of you have personally done this, or maybe you know someone who has done this. They've spent their whole life savings. They've cashed in their retirement, maxed out their credit cards, taken loans to try to heal the sickness that they're facing. This woman has done all that here in our story, and the text says that she's only gotten worse. And then she heard reports of this holy man who had healed unclean people, and her hope began to grow. She had no money to pay him, and she can't touch him because she was unclean. But even so, she believed, if I could just get to Jesus, if I could just touch the end of his garment, then I'd be made well. If I could just touch his little tassel as he goes by, then perhaps he can heal me. And so she goes. She waits until her followers, until his followers had gone by. She waits until Jesus had gone by, keeping her head down so she wouldn't be noticed or seen. With her fingertips, she touches Jesus' cloak. And immediately, immediately she felt her body change. The blood stopped. She was healed finally after 12 years of suffering. In that instant, she touched the cloak of Jesus. She was healed. Everything had changed. But Jesus speaks up. He asks the question, Who touched my garments? Must have been shocking for her. An icy shard of fear must have pierced her heart. What if this man finds out it was me? What if I've made him angry? Will, will he take away the healing that he's just given me? You know that, that feeling 
that perhaps you have when you've been found out for something in the past. Your chest tightens up, your heart starts beating fast, and you're paralyzed with fear. Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't know who touched him. Right? Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. It's more like a rhetorical question here. Right? Right? If you have kids, you know all about rhetorical questions. You know, I remember not long ago, we had a bag of chocolates upstairs in our bedroom. We had noticed that it was open one afternoon, and there were some wrappers left unwrapped, and we could look across the room and we could see one of our daughters minding her own business, reading a book. And then we look across the room to our other daughter, right? And we look at her face, and her face is just smeared with chocolates all over her face. And it's not as if the chocolates were all raptured, leaving the wrappers behind. No, we know what is happening here. And so it co- we come out with the words. I ask my daughters, does anybody know what happened to daddy's chocolates? You know, who ate daddy's chocolates? It's not that I don't know. <laughs> we see the proof everywhere. It's, we're giving them a chance to repent. We're giving them a chance to confess what they've done. No, Jesus knows exactly what's going on here. He knows who this woman was who touched him on the corner of his cloak. No, he's inviting her to come forward to publicly confess what she's done and to be in relationship with her. And so Jesus asks, who touched my cloak? You see, it's never just about healing with Jesus. It's always about being in a relationship. And so he says, who touched me? Now what's going to happen next is Peter's going to speak. Peter, if you have noticed in the Gospels, has the fantastic ability to fill silence with stupidity, doesn't he? Doesn't he, have you noticed this? When it's a good moment to not speak, that's when Peter leaps into action and comes alive. I, I love Peter. I don't know about you, but I love Peter because he gives me hope, right? Maybe he gives us all hope. That's why we love Peter, because it's hope for the rest of us who say silly things or stick our foot in our mouths when we shouldn't. But Peter says to Jesus, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Really, Peter, thank you. I had no idea that people were actually surrounding me, that people were pushing into me. Thanks for that. I'm glad I keep you around as one of my disciples. What would we do without you? (laughs) Then he goes on and adds and says, there are too many people to know who touched you. Jesus is a sovereign Lord of the universe. It's a ridiculous statement. And so, like often in the Gospels, Jesus just fails to respond to Peter's comments. He just lets him talk. (laughs) Let's him talk, but he just, just moves on. It's not the point that Jesus is making. No, in verse 33, we see that the woman answers Jesus' question, right? We see the woman responds with fear and trembling. She fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus does not only fail to rebuke her, but he calls her daughter and tells her that her faith had healed her. We'll come back to that in a minute. But just as Jesus is pronouncing this woman as healed, messengers come to let Jairus know some bad, bad news. That Jairus' daughter had died. I mean, what a crushing blow this must have been to Jairus. I mean, in Jesus' delay, in this interruption with the woman, the girl that he loves, 
The girl that he cherishes, his own daughter, had died and he didn't even have the chance to say goodbye. What must have gone through his mind? Maybe shock, sorrow, maybe bitterness at Jesus or bitterness at this woman for interrupting? This woman is healed, but but his daughter had died. And yet Jesus speaks up in verse 36 and says, Do not be afraid. Just believe. And he continues on with Jairus to go to his house. When people arrive on the scene, when Jesus arrived on the scene, we see in verse 38 that there were people wailing and mourning. These folks were actually professional mourners. It was their job to cry and be sad at funerals. They were professional criers. They would go and they would look really, really sad. And the more wealthy a person was, the more professional mourners they would have to try to honor this person's life. So lots of crying, lots of screaming, lots of wailing. And for the synagogue ruler, there was probably quite a few of these mourners around. They would tear their clothes. They would scream. They would put on a show. In essence, they were play actors. But look at this in verse 40. They were crying, they were wailing one moment, and now they're laughing. You see them switch to laughter when Jesus tells everyone that this girl is not dead. The mourners, they they just laugh. See, they know death. They get paid money to come to funerals. They cry for the dead. They've seen their fair share of the dead, and dead people tend to stay dead. So they laughed. I don't know what you're talking about Jesus this is crazy talk this girl is right here in front of us she has died but there in verse 40 he leaves Jesus leaves the mourners outside he takes the disciples and her parents and he goes in where the little girl is laying and he takes her by the hand and speaks to her and her heart starts beating again Her lungs start pumping oxygen again. Her brain wakes up and Jesus raises her from the dead. And it says that they were completely astonished. It was amazing. This girl is alive again. And then Jesus ends, as is often the case in Mark, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. Now, why is that? Do you remember? It's because Jesus is in control over his ministry here on earth. And he's not ready to go to the cross yet. He's not ready to be arrested yet. If there's too much hysteria there, if there's too many people that want to make Jesus the earthly king, then Rome will start to see him as a threat and they will arrest him. But there's still more for Jesus to do. You can imagine raising someone from the dead. That would be front page headlines everywhere. Everyone would hear of it. And so Jesus says, quiet down for a bit. I'm still not done. But he healed her. He raised her from the dead. And so what we have this morning in our passage is two beautiful healings of a woman and of a little girl. But what I want to do now for a few minutes is I want to go back to my original question. Why does Mark put these two stories together? And the answer is, to show us an example of faith. He wants us to see what true faith looks like. And he gives us, as we go through this passage, Mark gives us several reasons to have faith in this Jesus. 
Several reasons. We'll look at three of them this morning as we look at this story. The first reason to have faith in Jesus is because we see Jesus is powerful. We see that he's powerful. This is perhaps maybe an obvious one for us, but it is worth our reflection. We've seen Jesus do powerful things throughout the book of Mark. As we said, he calmed storms, he cast out demons. But the sequence of miracles at the lake reaches a climax here in Mark chapter 5. We see once again that Jesus has power over all uncleanliness, that he is indeed true cleanliness, and most powerfully, we see his power displayed in raising the girl from the dead. There's no incantations, there's no prayer, there's no higher power that Jesus appeals to. No, Jesus takes her by the hand and he raises her from the dead. He gives her new life. I mean, if you haven't understood that Jesus is God in the flesh at this point in the book of Mark, Jesus is blasting through the public address system, I am God. I am God. Look at what I can do. And it reaches a climax here. He raises someone from the dead. He's showing them and showing us that he has authority over life, that he has authority over death, that he is the sovereign ruler over everything. He is infinitely powerful. And so he is worthy of our faith. There is absolutely nothing that he can't do. That's the first thing we see, that Jesus is powerful. The second reason we are to have faith is because Jesus is timely. Jesus is timely. I mean, imagine what Jairus is thinking when Jesus stops the crowd to heal the woman. I mean, seriously, this woman has a chronic problem. It's been going on for years when his daughter had an acute illness. She was about to die. It makes no human sense, does it? It's irrational. I mean, what Jesus does would be called medical malpractice in a hospital. I mean, any emergency room doctor that would see these two, two gals come in would leave the woman with a chronic injury and would go to save this little girl's life. I mean, we'd all do it. You leave everything behind to save the life of someone at death's doorstep. But see, the timing of Jesus is often confusing for us. We don't always understand it. Perhaps it's even hurtful. Maybe at times you have become bitter at God for his timing. Perhaps you're even bitter this morning. You can't see what God is doing in your life. He doesn't seem to be doing what you've asked of him. He doesn't seem to be doing what you think he should be doing and in the timely manner that you think it should be done. Maybe you're even tempted to seize control of your life and to dictate what God ought to do. See, for Jesus to raise a girl from the dead or cure a fever is no problem to him. No, what he's doing here is he is strengthening the faith of both the woman and Jairus and all those who are a part of the story. And in that moment, Jairus can't see what Jesus is doing. All he can see in that moment is that his little girl is suffering, that she is dying that his whole world is crashing down. And so it's often the case for us. When things don't go the way we planned or the way we want them to go, we lose hope. But the truth that Jesus is timely gives us encouragement to trust him in all circumstances. In Proverbs 3, when the author says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Lean not on your own understanding, but acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. No, Jesus is sovereign over timing. Nothing comes to pass out of his plans. Nothing is an accident. No delay is accidental. God is sovereign over all time. So we see here with Jesus. So this morning as you reflect on your life, is Jesus delaying something in your life? Do you feel desperate for the Lord to act on your behalf or a loved one's behalf? And perhaps you can't see that he's doing anything. Maybe you're even tempted to become bitter. Maybe you're impatient right now for something. Maybe you're going through a real difficult time right now and you're just waiting for the Lord to hear and answer your cries. If that's you, my friends, this morning, I am sorry that you're going through it. I know many of us are hurting. But I encourage you that you're in good company with the psalmist who preaches to his own soul in Psalm 27 when he says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Preach that to your soul. Preach the gospel to yourself. Renew your trust in the God who assures us in Romans chapter 8 that God did not even spare his own son so that we might be saved. That nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Don Carson has said that Jesus often shows us his love by delay. That's what Jesus is doing here. Remember several weeks ago when I said that God is never doing nothing in your life. He's never doing nothing in your life. He's always up to something. He's not sitting idle in your pain and in your suffering. No, he is sovereign over timing. He is timely. And so we can have faith in this timely God. Well, the third reason we can have faith in Jesus is because he's personal. Jesus is personal. Didn't you think it was odd when Jesus arrives at Jairus' house and he says that the girl is sleeping? I mean, the parallel account of the story in Matthew and Luke make it clear that Jesus understands that this girl is dead. I mean, she's dead. She's not mostly dead. She's not kind of dead. You're either dead or you're not. And so Jesus understands that this woman is, that this girl is dead. Then why does he make reference to sleep here? Well, Tim Keller has commented in his new book that the answer is in what Jesus does next. That Jesus sits down with the little girl. And you see what he does with her? He takes her little hand and he says, Talitha kum. Talitha literally means little lamb or little girl. And you see what he does with her? He sits with her. He calls us Talitha Kum. Talitha uh, would be more like a nickname or a pet name. Little girl is the accurate translation, but it would have the same meaning as sweetheart or honey. It's a phrase that a father would say to his sweet daughter, perhaps when he's waking her up in the morning. And kum means arise. It means to get up. It doesn't mean to be resurrected. 
No, Jesus is doing just what a little daddy, a daddy would do on any given morning. He'd go sit next to his daughter. He might tell her, sweetie, wake up. Honey, wake up. It's time to get up and go. And so Jesus says this, and the girl wakes up. It's as if Jesus is saying by his actions here, if I have you by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. Jesus is saying that he cares about his people. You know, there's nothing more frightening for a little child than to lose the hand of a parent in a crowd or in a dark place. But that is nothing compared with Jesus' own loss and horrific separation from his father as he suffered on the cross. My fellow Christians, the father let go of Jesus' hand. And it was on the cross that he was rejected by the father. He was condemned and punished and forsaken so that you and I wouldn't have to be. Jesus died and went into the tomb so that you and I could be raised to new life. No, he lost hold of his father's hand so that we could know that once he had us by his hand, he will never, ever, ever, ever forsake us. If you're a Christian, Jesus will never leave you. He holds your hand like he holds this little girl's hand. He will be with you every day of your life and on into eternity. He personally cares for you. He has personally saved you on the cross, and his death on the cross demands our faith. It's our great joy to have faith in a God who has personally saved us. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, you are not a Christian, then we are thrilled that you've joined us. We say that every week because we really mean it. We love it that you're here with us. As we, as we come before his word, we love that you've joined us. But the Bible says clearly that your greatest need in your life is the same as my greatest need. It's, and it's that you need Jesus Christ. You need him. The Bible says that you need him because you and I have sinned against a holy and righteous God. We have rebelled against him. And Romans is clear that we deserve death and judgment for our sins unless we turn from our sin and believe in Jesus. If you've never done this and you're here this morning, I trust in God's timing to bring you here today that it's not an accident that you're with us. I would encourage you to believe in Jesus for salvation because the best gift that Jesus gives us is not healing, but it's himself. The best gift that Jesus gives us is a relationship with Jesus, and that's what these stories tell us, right? That Jesus is not content in merely dispatching a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. With Jesus, miracles always lead to a meeting. It's not about getting a physical needs met or earthly problems solved. Jesus intends to give of himself personally to you. So if you don't know him, I encourage you, come to him today. Repent, believe in him. He will forgive your sins and he will bring you into a personal relationship with himself. No, it is this God, this personal God, who is worthy of our faith and adoration. Friends, this God is so personal, we see here in the text, that he cares, he even cares about the little details in our life. Do you catch that here in the text at the end of the story? I love it how the story ends in verse 43. He tells them to get the little girl something to eat. I love how Jesus cares about the little details of our lives. 
I mean, she's hungry. She's been sick. She even died. She must need something to eat. Jesus cares about those things. And so, friends, regardless of what you're going through today, even if it seems small, even if it seems minute, cast your cares on Christ. Come to him with your anxiety, with your exasperation, your failures, your suffering, your sin. I know that many of you are facing things in Dubai and here in the UAE that you never thought you'd face. Many of us came here with high hopes of a new and wonderful life, and it's been difficult. Many of you feel trapped. Many of you are weighed down by debt. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you have difficult jobs that you loathe. Many of you are separated from family and friends. I encourage you this morning to come to God, to reject any shame, guilt, fear, and to dare to touch the edge of his cloak. I encourage you, child of God, he will not turn away from you. Now, friends, this is a God to place our faith in. And it's a faith that is available to all, as modeled beautifully in this passage. We saw that Jairus was an esteemed ruler of the synagogue in his society. And yet the woman in this passage had nothing. Her name is not even given or remembered. And she has no position. Her only identification is her shame and the fact that she's been bleeding for 12 years. We see that she even has to approach Jesus incognito because of her ceremonial uncleanliness. Whereas Jairus has the privilege and position to approach Jesus face to face. But Mark wants us to know that Jairus holds no advantage regarding the one thing that's most important, faith. But that the woman here actually exemplifies faith. right? Because despite her circumstances, she pushes through both the crowd and the disciples to reach Jesus. Her gender, her namelessness, uncleanliness, and shame, none of these will stop her from reaching Jesus. And Jesus calls her a woman of faith. And so when Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. How should Jairus understand the command to believe? What kind of faith should he have? Well, the answer is that he must have the kind of faith that this woman has just displayed. To trust Jesus despite everything to the contrary. The faith knows no limits, not even raising a child from the dead. No, Jairus is given an example of faith right before his very eyes, and we're given that same example. That Jairus and Jairus in the story ends up believing, and we should follow suit. So this morning, how is your faith? How is your faith in this Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus? Faith is only as strong as its object. It's no good just in having faith, but having faith in Jesus. So how is your faith today? Well, one question you might ask yourself in application is this. Do you pray? Do you pray to this great God? We have just seen that Jesus is powerful, that he is timely, that he is personal. Do you try to live your life in your own strength, trying to solve your own problems, trying to cast your worries and cares on yourself, or do you cast those on him? Do you pray? 
encourage you to ask yourself that question honestly this week. Are you a person of prayer? You see, when we pray, what we're doing is we're placing our trust and faith in God to move, to act, to do a miraculous work. But when we fail to pray, what we're demonstrating is our lack of trust, our lack of faith in this Jesus, and we try to live our lives in our own strength. And friends, I encourage you to ask yourself that question and to reject a life of man-centered living. I was blatantly, just brutally confronted with this truth this past week. Our staff has been talking about prayer lately that we need to emphasize and develop uh, our own prayer lives with fervency. I encourage you, is this Jesus one that you are actively placing your faith in? Are you praying? See, this woman in the story is one of my heroes. I love this woman. If she had a name, I bet many of us would name our daughters after her. I love what she does. She is determined somehow, some way, if I can just touch this man of power, I can be healed. See, true faith is always desperate. True faith runs to Jesus because you have no other hope. This is radical faith. Let's go to this great God now in prayer and ask him to give us here at Redeemer this same faith to do unbelievable things for his glory. Let's go to him now in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us this morning with faith. We ask that we would see the brilliance of Jesus, that we would see his tenderness, that we would see that he's personal, that he's powerful, that he is timely, that he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And most of all, Father, that we have seen his love on the sacrifice on the cross. Oh, Father, help our unbelief. Father, help us to trust in you and your ways. Help us to be men and women of prayer, that we would depend not on ourselves. Father, that we would not try to live our lives in our own strength, independent of you, Father. We would not reject you, but that we would trust you, that we would pray to you, that we would beg of you, just like this woman and just like Jairus, that we would beg of you to move in our lives. Father, we pray that you would give us this faith, that as a church, we'd have this faith in you, that you could do a miraculous work in our lives and in the people we interact with here in the UAE. Father, give this to us. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.